Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode. In just a moment, my conversation with City Council Member Justin Brannon, a Brooklyn Democrat, on a number of important and interesting topics, including a recent City Council oversight hearing he co-chaired on September 14th, looking at the city's resiliency efforts and preparation for severe weather, a hearing that was spurred by the devastation from Hurricane Ida earlier this month. Before we get into that and much more with Councilmember Brandon, if you've missed any recent episodes of Max Politics, please do find them wherever you get your podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. I've had some really good and interesting recent conversations with a bunch of great guests on interesting topics. We've had State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli, State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, City Council candidate Tiffany Caban, State Senate Deputy Leader Michael Gennaris, and other great guests talking city issues, state issues. We've spent a lot of time recently, of course, on the transition from Governor Andrew Cuomo to Governor Kathy Hochul, but we've also been digging in on some city issues with uh, City Council candidate Tiffany Caban, as I mentioned, also City Council member Keith Powers on a recent episode talking about oversight of city jails. And I've also spoken recently with a bunch of experts and advocates on issues, including the state's eviction moratorium and rent relief program, the state's excluded workers fund, and on the issues of resiliency and city planning and dealing with severe weather and climate change. And that one relates a lot to this conversation with council member Brandon. So after you listen to this discussion, please do find that recent conversation I had That one was a little different. I brought together three very sharp advocates and experts about how New York is and isn't dealing with climate change and resiliency and urban planning and more. And that one was just after Ida came up and hit the city so hard. And it was with representatives of Regional Plan Association, Transportation Alternatives, and Align New York. So check that out when you get a chance. But here we are today with Councilmember Justin Brannon. He's a Democrat representing parts of Southern Brooklyn. He's the chair of the City Council's Committee on Waterfronts and Resiliency. He's seeking re-election this fall. And then, if successful, to become the next City Council Speaker in January when the new class of City Council members will vote on their new leader. He's a a very interesting character and political figure. He's a former punk rocker turned politico. He's been on the show before, but we haven't gotten into too much of his background, but you can read about that uh, elsewhere. And he's worked in government for a while now, got elected to the city council in 2017 and represents a very interesting district that has, like many others in the city, been changing over the years, becoming more diverse in a number of ways, but with a fascinating mix of political ideologies, Uh, holding on to some of the sort of old school outer, outer borough characteristics uh, in the city and uh, a lot of interesting things there. So plenty to discuss. Uh, Council member Justin Brandon, welcome. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, Did I capture you and your district well enough there in brief? Uh, Any anything I missed? Anything you want to tell us about you and, and the places you represent in the city council? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I represent the, uh, the neighborhoods where I grew up in, uh, in Southwest Brooklyn, it's all the little neighborhoods, uh, underneath the Verrazano bridge on the Brooklyn side, uh, never in a million years that I think I would be, uh, an elected official, a politician. Um, you know, uh, I always thought politics was a bunch of stuff that, 
the old white guys with white hair argued about in Washington. It doesn't really affect my life in any real way. Uh, the rent was due on the first. I had to uh, make sure I had enough money left over for groceries and to pay my phone bill. And that was my day to day, you know, reality. It wasn't until I, uh, I, I fell in love with local government and, and the pace of local government, which really captured my attention and my imagination. And um, uh, that's how I got involved. I just, I loved the immediacy of, you know, someone walking into your storefront office and with a problem and sort of undoing their knot and sending them on their way was just a really beautiful, rewarding thing. And um, it, there's just no feeling like it. So I just was drawn to helping people, love helping people. And politics is kind of what you got to put up with to uh, to do the job of public service. What are the most common things that your office gets, uh, you get contacted about in your district office there? Um, you know, it's a lot of everyday quality of life stuff. I mean, certainly through the pandemic, you know, we were fielding a lot of, um, you know, life or death issues, you know, whether it was uh, unemployment or folks who didn't know where the next meal is coming from, um, you know, folks who were uh, fearful of eviction, folks are out of work, um, you know, uh, people, you know, asking medical advice, um, you know, um, certainly when I ran for office, I never thought I would be um, attempting to govern during a pandemic, but, but, you know, here we are. And, um, but it definitely reminded all of us, I think of, you know, how uh, interconnected we are in, and, and how my health and safety and well-being is related to my neighbor's health and safety and well-being. And if they're not well and I'm not well, if they're not safe, I'm not safe. And it reminded us of, of how many of our neighbors are, you know, just one paycheck away from a, a very, very different reality. So it was very sobering and um, it was, you know, dealing with a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, you didn't sign up for, so to speak. But, um, you know, you learn quickly that being a, a leader in, in times like this just means showing up. It, it doesn't mean having all the answers. Um, it means showing up and being there for people and taking their problems seriously, no matter how big or how small. Um, and I think one of the things really I, I've I've really been reminded of in this job is that you can never tell someone they're they're not experiencing what they're experiencing. You can't suggest that what they're seeing is not real, what they're feeling is not real. Um, and you have to take everything they bring to you seriously and um, and do your best to uh, to help them. And you know, during a pandemic, it was it was it was brutal. It was brutal. The, the incoming stories we were hearing and, and things we were dealing with, and then you go home to your own family and you're dealing with that too. You know, it, it's it's a lot. But but you know, as a public servant, you're, you're blessed that um, you're able to keep your job. You know, so that's a uh, uh, something you're thankful for, and you have to just give of yourself as much as possible because you feel so lucky. But um, but it was it was tough, and I think everyone really. Uh, suffered and struggled in their own way. And many people are still suffering and struggling. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's no one, no one ever wants to, when someone calls your office with a problem, no one ever wants to hear, well, that's happening everywhere. You know, they just, they just want you to fix the problem. They don't want to hear, well, what's happening here is happening in every neighborhood across the country. Um, but it's hard to not see everything the past 18, 19 months through 
the the lens of the pandemic. You know, the uh, mm-hmm. it was the, the economic impacts were, were catastrophic, and our safety net bottomed out. And um, you know, we're in a very very different uh, reality. And I think uh, it's hard for people. You know, it's not like any of us can say. Well, the last time there was a pandemic, things were back to normal by now, you know. Right. So, and and I think because of that, uh, people are they're frustrated and they're angry and they're anxious and they're impatient and they want this to be over and we all do, um, and they look to their leaders for answers. They want you know they want you to end this misery, mm-hmm. um, and and you can't, you know. So that that's been tough, but um, but it's it's the best job in the world. You get to wake up every day worrying about the neighborhoods where you grew up um, and get paid for it. It's, it's a pretty great job. And, and add on to obviously the attempts to recover from the pandemic, the reopening of schools and, and economy to different degrees and, and different, you know, requirements and changes of use of space that have occurred. And then we get these severe weather events, um, you know, some more catastrophic than others, but a stretch of these uh, torrential downpours, including the worst, obviously, uh, via the the remnants of Ida, and, and we'll get back to that in a second. Just on your district for another minute, maybe we'll come back to this later if we have time. But um, you know, you have this fascinating mix, as I was kind of getting at a little bit, where um, you know, to expand on the the thoughts I shared earlier, you have um, a changing district in some ways, a district that in other ways, you know, people pride themselves on sort of being. Uh, you know, in on the sort of outskirts of the city, they they want attention from city government, but they also kind of want to want to uh, not not be you know over like overgrown other parts of the city. Um, you have uh, sort of democratic primaries that can get pretty far left out there, but then general elections that it's one of the few places in the city where you know things can get pretty tight for Democrats like yourself. It's a pretty interesting district politically. Yeah, it's really is a. I I see it. It's really a microcosm uh, of for America. You know, I think everyone, at least for the city of New York, you know, you really have the spectrum of of uh, political ideologies. And you know, I mean, the uh, Democratic enrollment here great greatly outnumbers uh, Republican enrollment. But you have some folks who are Democrats who probably haven't voted for a Democrat since JFK. Mm-hmm. So it might be a Democrat on the rolls, um, but it's not like most of the majority of the city where if you're a Democrat and you win a primary, you're all done. You know, we have we still have competitive uh, general elections and Democrats out here don't win by landslides just yet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, but it definitely, I think, helps make me, I hope, uh, make me a better elected official, uh, you know, it, it because you have to. Uh, thread some of those needles and you also have to know you know when to listen and when to lead um, and when to take uh, what might be an unpopular position because it's the right thing to do uh, and when to say uh, you know look my my majority of my district might not be in support of whatever it may be so mm-hmm. um, you know and, and it's interesting because I, I do think that there's you know there's some folks that think once you get elected you know um, you know, it's like your job to like just ignore your constituents and just, you know, do whatever you think is right. And I think it's important to have that North Star and it's important to 
you know, there, there's there's certain values we all have that we're never going to compromise on. Um, at least, you know, I hope folks in this business, you know, feel that way. But mm-hmm. a lot of it is listening. A lot of it is, you know, th- th- what's the saying? There go the people. I must follow them because I'm their leader. You know, like mm-hmm. you have to listen to your district. And that's what representation is really all about. And, and um, but um, but it's very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's it's a very much. Uh, you know, the, our proximity, uh, our distance from City Hall, you know, makes folks often feel like we're forgotten or ignored. Um, and some folks just want to be left alone. So that's fine, too. Um, you know, uh, our transportation. Is it, yeah, is there, I was going to ask, is there any one issue that sort of, di- di- you know, you're getting like a sense of a divided community, so to speak? Obviously, your district is made up of many different communities, but um you know, are there things related to vaccine mandates or, you know, restaurants using street space and removing parking or, you know, are there things that seem to really be kind of cracking up in the district that are the biggest, you know, kind of political challenges for you right now? Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the mandate, I think, you know, is is overwhelmingly popular um, or not, not popular. It's overwhelmingly supported. Um, I think, you know, none of us, I wish there wasn't a need for a mandate. I wish people just were, were just got vaccinated. Um, but, um, I think there's definitely a feeling that, uh, business owners really shouldn't, uh, be forced, you know, they're already sort of overburdened. Like they shouldn't be forced to now be the vaccine police. I get that. Um, but, you know, this is about keeping everybody safe, right? And keeping your customers and your workers safe. So, um, you know, th- there there is some of that energy, um, you know, where where people feel like it's government overreach, you know, um, uh, or whatever it may be. So you, you get some of that. But I mean, you know, I, I think ultimately this is all about, we all want this to be over, you know, and I think, um, the, the sooner more people get vaccinated, the sooner this will finally be over. Um, you know, I often wonder that without social media, would we really have the the reluctance uh, and the mis and disinformation that you see uh, around, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy and stuff. But um, so, you know, there are those issues that that the the Republicans try definitely to, you know, turn into and it gets pretty ugly. You know, do you have any um, neighborhoods in your district that are particularly low in, in the vaccine rates that you're trying to you're trying to, you know, get the word out more and, and boost people up? No, I think we're doing OK. You know, um, you know, if you support facts and science, then you understand why the mandate is necessary. But, um, you know, I think it's fair to, to understand why you feel small business owners feel just completely overburdened beyond belief at this point, because the city and state you know, are just making them once again, the frontline enforcement police, and they've been through this before. But I think, you know, what I'm trying to do is, you know, I want to celebrate the businesses that are doing the right thing, you know, and and I don't, I don't think we should be blaming local businesses for enforcing something that the vast majority of the public supports. I think, you know, businesses that are taking, um, you know, the the, the health and, and safety of their customers, and employees seriously are doing the right thing and they deserve our support. So I try to, you know, be positive with it and, and highlight those who are doing the right thing. Um, but yeah, it's tough, you know, and this is, you know, the past 18, 19 months have been presented us with challenges we've never had before. And, and because we're in such a, 
divisive time, even, you know, post Trump, it really hasn't gotten much better. You know, um, it's, it's difficult and it's difficult at the worst possible time because these are really, you know, you're talking about a pandemic, it's, it's life and death here. So this isn't the most ideal time to have these, these partisan, uh, fights. So something that seems to maybe becoming less and less partisan is, is the recognition of the impacts of climate change and the need for, you know, more resiliency planning and reducing emissions and, and such. Um, so, so let's, let's get into this. You, you, cha- you co-chaired this hearing uh, last week, brought in a bunch of city agencies, the mayor's office of resiliency, uh, representatives of the department of transportation, the MTA, the department of environmental protection, sanitation, uh, you know, a really important group of officials to talk about storm preparation, what went right and wrong when Ida hit and other storms. What, what were your biggest takeaways from the hearing? Did you achieve the sort of goals that you had going into it to, to get more information? Uh, What, what were your big takeaways? Um, I think I went into it. uh, I, I went into it and I left it with the same, uh, idea, which is that we're just not remotely ready for the next superstorm, um, and I felt that way, you know, going on almost going to be nine years next month from Hurricane Sandy. Um, you know, I tried to, you know, I'm not, you know, I didn't want to point fingers. Obviously, a lot went wrong. I'm trying to think forward. You know, I think the city has endured and recovered from from just about everything that's been thrown at us and each time we were able to come back stronger um but we we've got to come back smarter and i think um we have to and that means moving forward uh more informed uh, about the risks that we face and, and better uh better able to prepare and, and protect for our future and i think ultimately that is resiliency um so I wanted to learn, you know, if the city felt like they were caught off guard and, and you know, they that's what they sort of said. Um, I think that's been argued, you know, whether or not uh, the National Weather Service had been pretty clear uh, that, that this was going to be a rough one. I think, you know, we had all been so prepared or, or bracing ourselves for uh, for Henri that that this one you know, uh, it, you didn't see the, the preparation anticipation like you saw uh, for Ida, like you saw for Henri. Um, but I think it's just, you know, the hearing, it, it was tough. I mean, it, it for me, it, it, it proved what a lot of us have been saying that, uh, you know, the city hasn't really accomplished very much uh, outside of lower Manhattan um, in, in the years uh, since Hurricane Sandy. You know, when I started, when I took on this committee and I started visiting communities, um, you know, along the, the 520 miles of the city's coastline, there's a lot of, you know, communities that are still dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. You know, um, they're still waiting for shovels in the ground or they're still, you know, cleaning up. They're, you know, it's it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Um, and, you know, um, New York City is one of America's most uh, hurricane vulnerable urban centers. It's like, I don't know, top five or top 10. And and I think people forget that, uh, you know, 520 miles of coastline, you get four of the five boroughs are islands or they're connected to one. Um, and a lot of times the outer boroughs get, you know, thoughts and prayers. And, and the sentiment is that it's thoughts and prayers for us and it's all hands on deck for Manhattan. Um, 
you know, I remember uh, during Hurricane Isaias the day before, you know, the city did this whole song and dance press conference about putting flood protection barriers in lower Manhattan. And a few hours later, you had a couple hundred thousand people out of power in the outer boroughs and Manhattan was bone dry. You know, um, so and, you know, it, it's there's a lot of, you know, a lot of this stuff requires just um, coordination on every level that um, is not always, uh, you know, the the uh, the default position for different uh, levels of government, you know, where you have to have city, state and federal all working together. Um, the hearing was, you know, concerning in, in you know, I think climate change sometimes seems so um, it seems like such a giant challenge that it feels like there's nothing you can do personally on a personal level. And it feels like it requires, you know, the, the antidote is only going to be these big, big policy uh, prescriptions. But it's it's also the small stuff, you know, and I think, um, you know, whether we're talking about the city providing, you know, backwater valves for, because everyone's basement got flooded or, you know, talking about the, the capacity of the city sewers. You know, this is not exciting stuff. Right. But but right. it's actually really, really important. And I think fighting back in, in a real holistic way is going to require both the, the the big, bold policy and it's going to require really sweating the small stuff, you know, because now you've got these sort of cascading disasters, you know, um, you know, that we're seeing these once in a lifetime storms, you know, a couple of times a month. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was was really uh, disturbing to me was, you know, DEP basically saying, well, you know, the, the, the current city sewer systems are designed to uh, uh, the capacity is for, you know, an inch and a half to two inches of, of rain an hour. Uh, and now we're seeing storms that are averaging three inches and above an hour. Right. Um, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that that doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the fact that, you know, if we're still currently installing sewers that with the same capacity, what, what, what do we do? What do we, why would we be expecting a different result if that's what we're doing? So, um, you know, it, it's concerning. And I think, um, you know, I also think that, there's a, it's not like we're looking at a, at a blinking cursor, right? It's not like we need to reinvent the wheel here. Like we, we know what needs to happen. Um, we know what needs to get done. We just actually have to roll up our sleeves and do it. But we have to really make sure that we're keeping in mind the urgency of this moment. And I think a lot of folks found religion in the days after these storms, but now they're on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's always part of the problem is maintaining that level of urgency um, on the days when the sun is out. You know, what, what, yeah. What is, I mean, what does it require? What, you know, what the sense of urgency when we come to the actual sort of nuts and bolts of that, what is what does that require? I mean, we see all these announcements after the storm, you know, from the mayor, from the governor, you know, oh, new new projects are now going to be funded. There's going to be a new alert system. You know, we learn lessons from emergencies. We also, you know, hear things that probably should have been done before. There should have been, you know, more more urgency, this, that, and the other. You know, you name a crisis, even, you know, beyond resiliency, you name a crisis in the city, and there's just you know, none of the solutions that seem, you know, to be important are moving, moving fast enough. So on the nuts and bolts, what are we talking about? I mean, what, you know, are we talking about uh, just, you know, 
moving up the funding? Are we talking about hiring more people at DEP? You know, I mean, you know, those are throwing more resources at the problem, but what are we, you know, what are we talking about? I mean, you know, look, I think, I'm, you know, I, I will forgive the administration in the sense that, you know, we just had a storm that the, the same storm, you know, um, devastated Louisiana. And then a couple of days later, it traveled like a thousand miles across the country and devastated, you know, Hollis, Queens. Like we've never seen anything like this before. Um, and I think it's going to take partnership on every level of government to prepare uh, for the next one that we all know is going to be here soon enough. And I don't think that um, no, none of us who have been sounding the alarm um, take any joy in saying, well, I told you so, right? Like, so um, it, it, it's, it, you know, it's here, right? And I think it, it's not, it, this this new climate reality and the climate crisis is is very much here and now. And I think that there's, a, I mean, there's there's a litany of projects that are, you know, it's almost 10 years since Hurricane Sandy. You have Red Hook still has temporary uh, flood protection measures, right? It's basically a wall of like fancy sandbags. Mm-hmm. There's a five, there's almost a $600 million resiliency project uh, to fix uh, Hurricane Sandy damage to the Red Hook houses. NYCHA, even NYCHA admits that that won't get done for like another three years. Um, 2017, you had a bunch of consultants study resiliency uh, in East Harlem. There there was a plan that was released in uh, 2019. Nothing ever got done. City said it was too expensive. Um, There's the big seawall project on the east shore of Staten Island. It's over $600 million. Uh, Originally, it was supposed to be completed this year. They haven't even started yet. Um, You know, the the Rockaway uh, reformulation project, it just started last year. Uh, Hunts Point, you know, which is the the certainly we learned during COVID is the epicenter of, of New York City's food distribution. So what's at the root? What's at the root of all this, though? I mean, you know, this is the stuff that we report on that, you know, that your committee will recap in a committee report. You know, but sure. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. The root, is, the root of the problem here is lack of urgency, uh, lack of coordination, uh, lack of um uh, part, you know, a, a partnership and different levels of government mm-hmm. um, and staying on top of this stuff um, and not getting defensive about it, that that it's not getting done, like just get it done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we just, we can't. And, and a lot of it is just the glacial pace of bureaucracy, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, it, and it drives us insane because this is deja vu all over again. You know, so you uh, you you backed Eric Adams in the primary for mayor. He he won the primary. He's very likely to be the next mayor. This is the stuff that he's talked about incessantly, right? And he's he's made some very big promises to fix this stuff. Right. Um, how's he going to do that? Do you think he can do that? Is you know is this possible? Sometimes I people ask me, you know, sort of lay people what my perspective is on why city government is, you know, so inefficient and why these projects take so long, uh, why there's so much disorganization. And, you know, I have answers, some of them you've already stated, but, you know, how do you, how do you wrap your arms around this and actually get these things humming in a, in a productive, efficient fashion? I mean, I think part of it is as simple as getting one side of the building to talk to the other side of the building. You'd you'd be surprised how how infrequently that happens. Um, I think it, it also, I mean, I think Eric is great on this stuff because he understands that 
there is immediate stuff that the city can do. You know, we uh, Hurricane Isaias last summer, uh, you know, a big issue we had in the outer boroughs was uh, the lack of tree maintenance. And we had trees that fell down and then knocked out power lines. And then you had 150,000 uh, Con Ed customers without power. You know, and a hundred of those customers were in Manhattan because in the outer boroughs, you still have overhead power lines. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, it, it, you know, and it took, I think it took more than a week for the lights to go back on for everyone that was affected. And right there is just a, is, is, is an indictment on the responsiveness, responsiveness of our government and, and, and our utilities. So, um, so the fact that the, 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 uh, that Eric Adams would, you know, appreciate something, the, the relation between tree pruning and the climate crisis is, is great because it actually, it might not make that immediate connection the same way that animal agriculture might not make that immediate connection, but it's all related. Like none of this stuff happens in the silo. So, um, you know, it, it's, and that's sweating the small stuff, right? And, and those are the things that in the here and now um, are, are, are actions that we can take to mitigate the, the reality of climate change. Mm-hmm. And um, so one thing, one thing that uh, some people have answered when I, when I've asked this question, I mostly asked it during um, interviews I did with the candidates for New York city controller during the, the primary. And actually I think uh, several of them uh, without having seen the others interviews said the same thing, which is that one of the, you know, one of the biggest issues with getting city government to work better is more accountability. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, it strikes me, obviously, from everything we can tell, you know, Mayor de Blasio has this weird combination where he's sort of like both aloof and a micromanager and he's running for president. But then he's also apparently, you know, very demanding in certain ways. And this very strange combination of leadership skills that has obviously not worked out that well in many ways. Uh uh, you know, not to take away from his accomplishments and such, but there's some obviously some real issues around execution and focus and and accountability in, in city government. So, you know, Eric Adams talks about this, especially at the police department, with you know where he obviously knows things best, having having worked in it for for decades. Um, but in terms of your role at the city council, has the city council been doing enough? You know, to to are there enough oversight hearings? Are oversight hearings overrated, you know, by the press? Uh, you know, how, how do you do more on the accountability side? Obviously, there's only three months left in this mayor's term, but looking forward, you know, and looking back, have you done enough? What can you do different, you know, in the city council uh, going forward to increase accountability, to increase the, you know, impact that government can have when you're talking about these emergencies and, you know, action needs to happen? I mean, it's a great question. I think that, you know, just because uh, our, our, you know, one of our main powers is oversight doesn't mean that it has to be after the fact, right? And we just have to be reactive, like, you know, doing postmortems on what went wrong with, uh, you know, the first day of school or the last storm or, or something at the buildings department, you know, if we don't learn from it, then, um you know, then it's an exercise in futility. So I think the council could definitely be more aggressive with if there's time, uh, 
you know, uh, if there's if there's time, it, you know, depending on what the issue is, to ask the city, okay, this storm is coming. What do you have planned, and what are you going to be doing differently, rather than sort of feeling powerless after the fact and 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 doing an autopsy on what went wrong. Um, so that definitely can be frustrating. Um, but I think there's a lot of you know there's a lot of stuff that also happens behind the scenes, right? Like it's not like we're only uh, screaming at the administration about this stuff when we have our oversight hearings. Um, I think, you know, we're, you know, the different districts that, that these projects are, are happening in, uh, certainly is being, uh, you know, different members in their districts are looking over these, these projects. My committee's looking over them at sort of trying to look at them holistically to make sure they're moving along, but it can be frustrating because these are big, big projects that often, uh, require, you know, a multi uh, layers of funding from from different levels of government. So it's a lot. And if you don't have uh, an administration that is really prioritizing this stuff, um, again, it, it people find religion in the days after the storm and then and then it goes away. So um, I think it's a matter of keeping that drumbeat going um, so that the urgency is there um, and so that things things are actually getting done and it's about sweating the small stuff. I mean, you know, you have to care about this stuff. When I say it all the time, when the, when the government fails people on, you know, the, the smallest and most immediate levels, then we can't be surprised when people don't trust the, the same government on, on the bigger issues. And if you can't you know, get the sewers cleaned out, then then how are you going to trust that same government to run a healthcare system? So, you know, you've got to sweat the small stuff, especially because that's the stuff that you have the immediate power over that you, that you can fix, you know, in the here and now. Um, all these projects, even if they were all buzzing tomorrow, they're, they're taking months and months and months to years. So it's not going to happen overnight. But if they're just languishing in three, four years with people fighting over funding and studies and all this stuff, you know, then we can't be surprised if every time there's a storm, it brings the city to its knees. So, um, but I, I definitely I mean, I think that the council could definitely be, be more proactive. I think a lot, I mean, especially through the pandemic, it's been tough because things are happening so quickly. And a lot of times, you know, the, the governor will be on TV, uh, the former governor will be on TV talking about whatever's happening today with the pandemic. And as local elected officials, we're hearing it from the first time, we're hearing it for the first time, just like everybody else is. So, you know, uh, it's, yeah. it's maddening. It's maddening. Yeah, I mean, and legislative bodies are not necessarily known to be the, the most nimble. I mean, you know, passing legislation is not necessarily supposed to be the quickest act and, you know, other, other acts of a legislature, uh, take time, but, um, but yeah, there's 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 probably more ways to be more aggressive on uh, on oversight and accountability, as you said. I, I guess you know that that leads me back to this hearing. Um, you know, it, it strikes me from the mayor on down that that nobody really can say you know we screwed up. I mean, uh, the, you know, the mayor wants to blame the meteorologists. Um, Maybe their forecasts were off slightly, but as you said, there were you know some pretty hefty predictions. People might have been a little asleep at the switch because Henri wasn't as bad as they said it was going to be. But you know, is there what's the problem with with a you know officials not being able to say we screwed up, and b you know why is it so hard for officials from the same parties you know so often to say you screwed up? 
I mean, it's something like this. You'd hope that it transcends uh, any of that nonsense. You know, I think you, you have to be honest and, um, uh, you know, you, you have to be honest with, with people and say, look, if we drop the ball here, we drop the ball. I mean, the fact that we lost 13 people is is horrific. Um, but, you know, if you want to give uh, New Yorkers uh, faith that next time is going to be differently, I think you got to start with apologizing and recognizing that that we might have been caught off guard. Um, you know, and and look, and I, I'm also honest about, you know, if we're going to talk about now, we're, we're going to need to start evacuating folks living in low lying areas or in basement apartments. Then we need to have that conversation. But we've, we've never had that conversation before. Um, I also think that, you know, we need to kind of uh, you know, what I've been saying is sort of lift this veil of exceptionalism a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think it's fine uh, that we all would agree that this is the greatest city in the world and, and, and there's no place like New York. But that doesn't mean that other cities or, or countries or, or even states might be uh, might have better ideas than, than we do or better practice than we do on resiliency. Um, and we should be stealing from them as fast as possible. You know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. I think that a lot of times it can seem daunting, like, well, you know, how are we, we're not going to fix climate change. So, oh, well, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that we can do. And there's a lot of stuff that other cities and frankly, countries are doing better. So we need to learn from them. We need to not be afraid to steal their ideas if they're doing it better. Um, Eric Adams says he's going, I believe, to the Netherlands to to check out some of that. So. That's yeah, and that's what I mean. Like they're, you know, like Copenhagen is is the the they're doing it the best. Like what um what is there anything on the on the legislative front or even the budgetary front that you're trying to you know advance here on these issues of resiliency? You have a yeah. yeah go ahead. The five the five R resiliency plan, uh, which was uh, me and and Costa Constantinidis, or the former councilman from Astoria. Uh, we introduced uh, in June of 2019, um, and it's you know it, it it's something that really shouldn't be so damn groundbreaking uh, because what it is is really uh, you know a, a plan. It's a five borough resiliency plan that would ensure that every neighborhood from you know uh, the Rockaways to Riverdale are, are protected from from rising sea levels and extreme weather um, and. Uh, but it's just a plan, right? This would just be, uh, you know, it would just create a plan um, to figure out what needs to be done on, you know, the the every borough, not just lower Manhattan. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Howard Beach or Northern Bronx or whatever it is, it's just, it's just taking a holistic look um, at, at, at what's going on here. And, but it really shouldn't have taken this long. It really shouldn't be so uh, controversial. Um, you know, I, I think. Um, and this, this five borough resiliency plan, it would mandate such a plan to be created by the, by the mayoral administration. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And bring, and to your earlier point, bringing these agencies together to you know to to attempt for there to be more of a cohesive approach. Exactly, exactly, and it would be the first time that that we would be taking really a holistic look at the entire city and the and all five hundred twenty. Any chance of that bill passing before the end of this session, this term, which is at the end of the year? 
I, I think so, because again, now people have found religion, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so we, I, I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm, I'm, I'm almost confident that we will get it done. Um, but this is just a plan, right? This is just, um, you know, it, it calls for the creation of a plan. So something that should have been done a long time ago, something that probably shouldn't have required legislation. Uh, but whatever, let's get it done. So in our last few minutes here with City Council Member Justin Brannon of Brooklyn, um, thanks so much for, for all the time here. Um, one or two more things legislatively that you're trying to accomplish here in the final months of this term. And, you know, obviously you're seeking a, a, a second term, as I mentioned in the introduction. But uh, any other couple of highlights you want to mention of things you're trying to get done here? Sure. I, so I have a bill that... Um uh, a bill that 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 seeks um, to, that creates a task force to study uh, a commercial to residential conversions, the office to housing conversions. Um, you know, um, you know, it, it would create a task force of developers and engineers and architects to just figure out if, if this even makes sense. Uh, you know, on a budgetary. Uh, uh, you know, basis, because I know uh, other cities, I mean, I think I stole the idea from DC. They they had a task force that uh, had explored ways to incentivize uh, commercial conversions. Um, and they found it, it wasn't the most efficient, uh, you know, a way to get to, to, to address the city's housing needs. I don't think it's a panacea at all, but I think that, um, you know, the pandemic has certainly shown us that there's going to be you know, if a, if a company has 20 or 30 floors of a building, they might come back with only 15. Um, and if there's a way to get together, uh, you know, HPD and, and folks from the buildings department um, and to put together a, a plan to to see if this is even feasible, uh, why not? Let's do it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'd like to see that get done. Um, definitely uh, pushing to try to get that done before the end of the term. And, but the five borough resiliency plan is really my my main focus now for the next couple of months. I'm trying to, you know, it's got a whole bunch of sponsors. So it, there's really no reason that that shouldn't get done. Okay. And it looks like you're passing a couple of bills um, as part of a package related to uh, improving conditions for delivery workers. Um, yep. That's that's going on this week. Uh, all right. Last couple of questions. Um, I mentioned at the top that you're, you're seeking to become the next speaker of the city council. Uh, talking to your colleague, Keith Powers, who's also thrown his hat in that ring, among others, uh, recently. I, I joked with him and, and the same to you. It's only a half joke, I guess, which is why would you why would you want this job? Um, but what's your what's your pitch to your hopefully fellow returning council members, as you would put it, or the incoming council members who are going to far outnumber the returners? Um, if you're successful in your reelection this fall, uh, you know, what's what's your pitch for making you the leader of the of the legislative body come January when that vote will happen among the 51 members? Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's super exciting. I mean, because of because of term limits, you know, suddenly um, the, the few of us that are returning are, you know, the elder states people, um, which is just wild. Um, I think the, the class of 2022 is, you know, shaping up to be full of just incredibly smart and diverse and talented uh, public servants. And I think when the job is done right, the speaker shouldn't be in the spotlight. The speaker should be behind the scenes helping uh, these these members shine and, and deliver for their districts. Um, you know, I really see 
the role of the speaker as sort of the manager of the baseball team. Um, I think, you know, the job is really to wake up every day thinking, how can I make sure uh, that, that, that everyone has what they need to deliver for their districts uh, and to make good on the promises they made when they were running. Um, and, and it's above all, it's your job to support the members so they succeed and make their priorities your priorities. And, um, you know, one thing I've definitely learned as a member for the past almost four years is you got 51 very, very unique districts and, and a one size fits all approach just doesn't work. Um, and it's also about making sure the outer boroughs have a seat at the table. I think all of us are tired of being ignored uh, by City Hall and, and fighting over crumbs. And, and four of the last five speakers have been from Manhattan. So I think it's time for you know uh, someone with uh, a different perspective and an outer borough perspective to um, to lead the body. And um, and it's going to be exciting. I mean, there's just a lot of really great talented. Uh, people coming in, and I've been very encouraged by the conversations we've been having. Uh, you know, I've been having with members and stuff all across the city, and just seeing, you know, how much we all have in common, how much our districts really have in common. Um, it has been very, very cool, and it's just been a fun, fun process getting to know everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, on the flip side of the of the need for outer borough voices at the table is this question of Brooklyn, Brooklyn power consolidation, the likely next mayor, controller, the current and likely next public advocate, all from Brooklyn, lots of other Brooklyn power brokers from the New York attorney general to others. Have you gotten any pushback about a potential Brooklyn, you know, speaker of the council? I mean, yeah, there's, you know, of course there's, there's folks that, you know, that, uh, (laughs) that talk about it. I mean, I think for me, it's, it's more about, uh, you know, for me, Brooklyn, you know, Brooklyn winning here would mean just a victory for for all the out of boroughs, you know, and all the folks that just have felt like we've been shut out of the process. You know, um, again, going around the city, the amount um, that that I see that my district has has in common with, uh, you know, folks in Southeast Queens or the Northern Bronx or Staten Island. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's really, or even upper Manhattan, you know, above, uh, 96th street, it may as well be an outer borough, you know, so seeing, um, you know, the, the, the feeling that folks have and, um, uh, you know, that they've been ignored by city hall for too long and that they're always, you know, sort of highlighted by the city when they want to talk about how cool and hip and diverse the city is. But when it's time for, uh, you know, for, for, for the uh, resources to come back, somehow it, it never makes it uh, all the way back to, to the outer boroughs is a real thing. You know, it's it's a real thing. And I think it's time for uh, an outer borough perspective, you know, and I, but again, it's not for me, it's not it's not a Brooklyn thing. It's an outer borough thing. And I think that's what we mm-hmm. all really have in common. And lastly, on that front, uh, the next city council is likely to have a majority of women members, uh, maybe the most diverse overall uh, city council uh, in in history. Um, you're a white guy. What do you say to to people who express concerns about you know representation and diversity? Sure, absolutely, it's important. I think it would be uh, more incumbent upon a straight white guy to put. Uh, women, especially women of color, in leader in leadership positions, and rightfully so. And and I take that very seriously. Um, 
you know, it's it's why I helped so many women and women of color get elected, uh, not only because I thought they were the best candidates for their district, but, but because I need to know who my colleagues are going to be in January. So um, no matter what happens, it's it's going to be a really, really uh, great body. And we're going to have, you know, only going to have two short years before we all have to run for reelection. Yeah. again. So we're going to have to get a lot done really quickly. But but it's it's very exciting. All right, we'll leave it there. We could uh, keep talking uh, about the the politics ahead, but we have more time for that uh, coming up in the in the months ahead, especially once we get the general election over with. We'll have a a good uh, six weeks or so to really dig in on some of this stuff. So we'll talk with you more about uh, those outcomes and the the speaker's race uh, in the months ahead. But uh, City Council Member Justin Brandon, thanks very much for the time. Oh no, thanks for having me, man.